Hello, my friends. I'm really excited to have a special guest on to our program today. Scott Katamas is joining us. He is the founder of the Love Coach Academy, a master relationship coach, and multiple Emmy Award winner as a writer, director, and producer of educational television programming. So uh, just a breadth of wisdom and knowledge, and I've had a chance to get to know Scott over the last several months and uh, just really excited to have him on the program and excited for him to share some of what he knows. So Scott, thank you for being here. I, I wanted to start give, by giving you a chance to just share a little bit about uh, your professional experience. Like I know that you've done just tons of different work, uh, different kinds of modalities. And, and like I think most educators and coaches, we kind of pull from all of our experiences and we weave them together into our own work. So I would love to hear about like what, what do you feel like has been most influential on you in terms of your approach to uh, coaching and supporting people with their relationships? And, and then we can kind of go from there. Okay. Well, you know, I think I've always been a relationship junkie, um, both personally and professionally. Um, really, you know, the two have always interwoven. Um, my relationships have always been very important to me, both romantic and friendships. And I've been studying relationship and coaching and have now coached well over a thousand couples and hundreds of individuals. And it's always about relationship. And, you know, many years ago, I realized, well, life is relationship. At all times, we're constantly in relationship to ourselves, to nature, to each other, obviously. And so if we want to be happy or if we want to have a good life, we need to have good relationships. And so that's been a big awareness of mine. And whether it's the chicken or the egg, that's what's fed my interest in relationship or vice versa. Um, and I think the other thing I should say is that I also believe that the meaning of life is we're here to learn to love. And again, we do that through relationship. We're here to learn to love ourselves and we're here to learn how to love others in really healthy ways. Um, and as we mature, and I'm 65 now, um, as we mature, our understanding of what real love is and how to demonstrate, give and receive mature love, real love, not just romantic love or fantasy projection love, but real genuine love is part of our evolution, part of our maturing. And, and so along your way, as you're, I'm sure, first learning relationship, like as an individual, as a person who, who loves people and loves relationship and learning personally, and then moving into this becoming more of a professional uh, sort of uh, vocation for you. What were some of the big lessons along the way? Like, what did you learn? And, and then how did you come to terms with those learnings? Uh, again, through your personal experience, but also through your professional development? Well, my parents were divorced when I was 10. And uh, later on in life, when I kind of did hypnotherapy and worked on myself, I literally saw that my parents were going to get divorced before I was born. And mom got pregnant with me and dad stuck around for another 10 years. And then when I talked to my dad about it, he confirmed that that was true. Now, where that comes into play with your question is that I then learned through hypnotherapy and my own different kind of exploration that I had a very strong attachment that my whole purpose in life was to keep my parents together. That was why I was born. That's why I was conceived. And so when they divorced at age 10, there was a sense of failure, right? And I probably had a little 10-year-old experience of a, of a crisis, of an existential crisis, right? And then here I am as an adult with the opportunity to save relationships, right? And when I first went into relationship coaching, um, I definitely had a strong uh desire to really make relationships great to help people have great relationships and within there uh and i was born on christmas day by the way so i literally grew up with a messiah complex and a rescuer complex right so there was this desire to rescue relationships and to fix relationships but the big evolution that's kind of um maybe it's a cosmic joke is that a lot of the people that have come to me as couples, not all, but many actually need to change the relationship. 
the romantic part of it or the sexual part of it is not working. Um, and it's actually best to just be friends or in some cases, just be co-parents or in some cases really take a big space because it's gotten so toxic. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting in my evolution through my professional career that I've learned that it's not always about keeping people together. It's about when it's healthy and it's possible. Yes. I did a, uh, uh, worked with a new client couple two days ago. And the very first thing I do is I've learned how to ask the right questions and kind of look and see how they relate to each other just to get a sense, okay, where are they? You know, are they both still looking for a way to make this work? Is one in and one kind of out? You know, I've learned how to, how to figure that out. Luckily, the couple I worked with the other day, they're both in. They want it to work out. They just, they just need support. But sometimes, you know, you do that and you realize, oh, wow, he's, he's done. Game's over. He's out the door and he's just trying to find an excuse or a way out. Right. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's a painful thing. It's uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily bad. It's stages of life. And the last thing I'll just say about that is, you know, we are living to be a hundred years old now. So it's not about meet young, get married, make babies, and then die at 40 or 50 or 60. You know, so we go through multiple, multiple relationships and we have multiple, it's a whole different dynamic. Uh, and many of us are not even having children. And even the people that do have children, oftentimes they either do it at a later time in life or they do it early and then they have their whole life after their children phase. So our, we go through multiple relationships in this lifetime. At least most of the people watching this show, most of the people listening to my voice are going to have multiple marriages, whether or not they actually get legally married, multiple significant relationships in their life. Well, yeah, I think you bring up a, an interesting point there around like as human culture and society evolves into this modern age, much of the kind of uh, survival mechanisms and, and things that kept us alive in a survival context aren't relevant in the way that they were. And we're having to completely reorient in relationship to relationship. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Uh, you brought up two things that I wanted to touch into because I think it's worth kind of going deeper on. You brought up purpose in a couple of places. So you talked about uh, what we're here for. And I, what I took from that is like, like a meta, like, like human beings on, on mass, like generally speaking, human beings are here to learn how to love yeah. as a kind of meta purpose, uh, which I totally agree with. Um, and maybe we can get into the, the specifics of what that means, what it means to have your purpose be to learn how to love. But then you, you also spoke about your childhood where your kind of conditioning and, and your sense of purpose for you as a young child was to keep your parents together. And that's what I would describe as a, a like a compensatory purpose. Mm -hmm. You felt insecure. You were terrified of the implications of your parents not being together. And then you did what most children do when the relation when the, the the primary caregiver relationship is under stress or at risk of falling apart is you probably blamed yourself and then probably went about trying to do everything you possibly could to to prevent it from happening and of course a child just they're not equipped we're not equipped to do that but we'll try and and obviously there's some challenges that go along so i'd love for for us to talk a little bit about the role that that our sense of purpose plays in our relationships yeah it's beautiful um, I would say that also for me, it was my ego's purpose. Um, again, born on Christmas day, Messiah complex, rescuer complex. And that literally my conception was my mother's desperate attempt to keep my father in the fold. So definitely there was a strong egoic purpose to keep them together. Um, and, uh, and then the irony is there's what our ego thinks our purpose is in life. And then there's the higher purpose. And I do believe the higher purpose for all of us is to learn to love, starting with ourself. And I, I'd love to share where that came from. Um, I mean, it's come from many places, but uh, I produced a series of television shows on near-death experiences. And as the producer, I had the opportunity to meet almost all of the major leaders uh, and researchers in the near-death experience field. 
And one of them, the, the main researcher at the time was a man named Dr. Kenneth Ring, like ring on your finger. And you can Google him. And he did clinical research and comparative analysis on over 300 cases of legitimate near-death experiences over a 10-year period. He would only research a case if they had been declared dead by a doctor or police officer. They had to be dead for at least 20 minutes. They had to have some partial memory of what happened while they were out there. And they had to be willing to be hypnotized by Dr. Ring um, to probe the subconscious. So we're talking serious cases. And the great commonality that he found was that when people were out there and they were kind of seeing the meaning of their life. And by the way, people's experiences really varied. Some people saw dead relatives. Some people saw angels. Some people saw Jesus or archetypal figures. Some people saw the big golden light. All of that was very different and usually connected to a person's belief systems before the event happened. But the great commonality was every single person, when it came up, oh, the meaning of my life, it was always a variation I'm here to learn to love, starting with myself. And each person then had their own unique challenge to that. I'm here to learn to love myself, even though I lost my legs in the car accident, even though I'm an alcoholic, even though my father beat me, even though my wife left me, even though my business failed, even though I'm fat, whatever it was, I'm here to learn to love myself despite filling that gap. Now, I first heard that 25 years ago before I was actively coaching people. Now as a coach, having worked with a lot of people, I apply that. It's like, okay, if the meaning of your life is to learn to love yourself, despite what? What is your challenge, your childhood wounding, your great disappointment, your great disillusionment? And it's amazing how when people, it's like the light bulb goes off, oh, whoa. Like people have this like moment and I've experienced it many times where they, people ask, oh my God, what is this the meaning of my life? And they realize that it's true or that it's the possibility that that's true. I mean, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about the, the, the meta arc of the hero's journey yeah. in terms of, you know, there's the familiar, uh, maybe some of us are, are disconnected from our ability or our sense of being able to love ourselves. Uh, and at some point, or, or maybe throughout our lives, we have these wake-up calls of like, oh yeah, I'm here to love myself. And there's there's some trials and tribulations to to travel if we're going to kind of come home again. There's the dark night of the soul that we need to travel if we're going to really come home to our love for ourselves again. I'm curious if you could share a bit about you know what you think most people are feeling challenged by in terms of like what's what's holding them back from loving themselves and others and how do you support people in navigating that yeah great question there's a one word answer to the first question shame shame is the great human epidemic nearly every person i've worked with and i've worked intimately with at least a thousand people now intimately meaning really them you know, sharing things that they don't share often, or I'm the only person they've ever talked to. And almost everyone suffers from some form of shame. The I am not fill in the blank enough. It's a human epidemic. And that is what gets in the way of loving ourself. The second piece that tends to create and exasperate shame is many people's religious upbringing and sometimes parental or family upbringing. Because obviously, sadly, we live in a culture where three of the five great religions of the world are very shame-based. I was raised in the Christian tradition, and I can remember being this little boy, seeing this beautiful man crucified on a cross who was tortured and died for my sins. And I literally can remember trying to figure out, well, what are sins and why did this beautiful man have to die? What did I do that was so bad and wrong that he had to die and be tortured and die a terrible death because of me? So there is that very uh, religious indoctrination. And I grew up in a pretty white bread. I was raised Presbyterian. I mean, you know, I look at my friends who are in more evangelical or even 
more um, authoritative religious culture, you know, it's, it, it really breeds shame, right? And then, of course, a lot of families, you know, if, if the mother isn't loving, if the father is cruel, if there's abandonment or rejection or, you know, children usually think, oh, what's wrong with me? You know, mommy doesn't love me. There's something wrong with me. Daddy yells at me. There's something wrong with me. Daddy left. There's something wrong with me. As you, you know, so there's this early childhood indoctrination of shame for many, many, many people. Um, and then it just continues on because we live in a culture that creates very false role models. Um, you know, I, I, I want to speak to how messed up it is in our culture that we are taught that a beautiful woman is an airbrushed anorexic teenage girl. And most boys, their first sexual experiences for the first 10 or 5, 10, 15 years of their life is either masturbating to airbrushed photos of young women or watching pornography, which is a completely false, completely unrealistic view of what healthy sexuality really looks like. But that's what gets indoctrinated into the brain, right? And so for women, um, it's really fucked up. Am I allowed to say that? For women, it's really messed up because it's teaching them that they're supposed to look a certain way that nobody looks like. Even the girls in those pictures don't really look like that. Um, and for boys or men, it creates this idea of the way women are going to relate to us. And when they don't, then we think there's something wrong with us. Um, so there's that next level of shame that comes in. And for most of us as teenagers or young adults, most of our first romantic experiences didn't go well. Most of our first sexual experiences did not go well. We did not get the love or the adoration that we wanted or thought we were supposed to get because we're not good enough. So the shame gets indoctrinated on a deeper level in terms of our romantic and sexual identity. Amazing. You know, I mean, there's so many layers to it. And, and when it comes to shame, uh, I agree. I think it's absolutely epidemic. I, almost everyone is carrying around uh, un, unseen, unprocessed shame. And one of the things that I think is challenging is, is that, you know, if we were fortunate enough to grow up in a, in a consistently loving, connected, safe environment where when there was a slip or a rupture, it was repaired, you know, we tend to just feel secure. And, you know, that's the attachment uh, kind of lens to look at it through. We feel secure. We feel confident. We trust people. We trust that relationships will work out. And we tend to gravitate towards and attract people who, who really show up and, and are responsible. Now, if we, if we track down the other side of the spectrum where people who didn't get that kind of consistent care or there was neglect or abandonment or even abuse, um, the amount of insecurity and shame that's there makes it so hard for us to show up and experience and cultivate trusting, intimate connection. And so then what we tend to attract is more of the same, which then reinforces our internal narrative of I'm not good enough and there's something wrong with me. And, and there's no easy solutions for that. So I'm just curious what you would say to people that might have had a, a more challenging upbringing and, and how do you start the path? How do, you, how do you start to engage shame in a different way where it can actually be different for you? Yeah, that's great questions. Well, one thing that I help people understand, because obviously most of the time I'm working with people that are adults, and let's say, I'll use the example, let's say that they uh, had parents that were neglectful. And so now they keep having relationships as adults with people that are neglecting or they're not being met the way that they'd like. <coughs> well, as you probably know, the inner child, regardless of whatever mommy or daddy did, always wants to love mommy and daddy. Now, the adult mind can go, man, my father was a real dick or my mother was really, you know, she was out to lunch. But the inner child within us still loves to want, wants to love mommy and daddy, wants to understand mommy and daddy, and wants to accept that mommy and daddy really weren't that bad. That's just the way the world treats me. Or that's just the way men are. 
or that's just the way, you know, the world is. And so when I point that out to people, and then we go into the specifics of their life, I try to help them compassionately understand that when they were attracting that narrative that was repeating the childhood wounding, there actually was a very innocent part of them wanting to love and accept mommy or daddy or that early wounding. And there's something about that when people get in touch with it from that point of view, it's less harsh and there's a, we, we return to innocence. And I do believe, and I've worked a lot in the prison system, that no matter what we've done, all of us do have an innocence that ideally a good coach can help that person to access. And so, as I think you know, my motto is how perfectly human. So my approach is that no one's broken, no one is permanently fucked up. I don't, I don't look at, I don't diagnose or evaluate. That's a more traditional therapist can do that. I help people remember how wonderful they are and how innocent they are and that life is challenging. Life is hard. They've had challenging and hard things. And underneath it all, there is an innocence and there's always the option for us to change our patterning, change our, our experience and our narrative, um, and to attract and experience the love that we all long for. Because every single one of us wants to be well-loved, wants to be well-cared for. We all want that. We have different ideas of what that looks like. We have different fantasies of that. But the bottom line is we all want to be loved and cared for. And also, we also want to love and care for others. Mm -hmm. right. Every now and then, a sociopath now, but even a sociopath, it's just because the empathy center of their brain got stunted. And a good therapist can even get in there and help to unstunt it and help them to start cultivating empathy again. Yeah, I, I really believe empathy is a, an innate human characteristic. Um, we're meant to to deeply know and feel each other. And and I think one of the challenges with our empathy, this is actually something I realized a number of years ago, but um, when we're mean to people, one of the primary kind of mechanisms of our of our malice and, and, and meanness towards others is that in a moment of, of authentic and innate empathy, we feel discomfort in our connection to someone. Mm -hmm. And that the shortest route to getting off the hook of feeling that discomfort is to dehumanize an attack. And so, you know, I, I noticed that in, uh, I worked with uh, bullying in schools quite a bit in my younger professional life and was talking with kids and, and teens and educators about like, how do we deal with this bullying issue? And, you know, if we don't allow and, and, and facilitate the development of, of emotional intelligence and, and children's ability to really just be okay with, with feeling uncomfortable with each other, and not needing to kind of get off the hook of that feeling, yeah. pretty much all of the bullying goes away. And so I've brought that into my work with people in their relationships is like, when you notice an edge with your partner, when you notice yourself getting nasty, or you notice them getting nasty, there's a couple of things that, that I've found really help. And I'd love to kind of get your feedback on it is um, a when it's coming from them, recognize that that's a, a, a hurt, scared, immature part of them playing out in relation to you. It's not to condone what they might be saying or doing, but just to recognize that that's what's operating under the surface. And that when we catch ourselves being nasty, what's really going on is that for us to remain openly, vulnerably, empathetically in connection, we would be in some significant discomfort. And our edge or our nastiness is a kind of outsourcing of that discomfort. Yeah. And, and when we see that more clearly on both sides, um, like your piece about loving ourselves, we can actually be empathetic to ourselves. Like, oh, that's where that nasty part of me comes from. And if I want to start to, culti to cultivate more nourishing relationships, I'm gonna have to face that stuff more, more, more honestly. So yeah, I'm just curious about your thoughts on yeah, how I'm, we cultivate that kind of empathy and, and connection when we feel uncomfortable with each other. Yeah. So a term that I've coined, although I'm sure other people have used it as well, is when we hit an intimacy threshold, and that's what often happens. It's kind of like, 
if any of, you know, for most of us can relate to what it's like. You go out and you have too much to drink and you have a great time and the next day you have a hangover. Well, likewise, people have emotional hangovers um, because they went past their intimacy threshold. It can be emotional intimacy. It could be sexual intimacy. In the moment, it felt really good. It felt really safe. And then the next day or even an hour later, the ego comes and goes, what are you doing? We agreed we're never going to open our heart like that again. We agreed we're never going to allow somebody in like that. We agreed we're never going to share with somebody that, you know, it's like the ego comes in to protect. And by the way, I want to say, I don't think the ego is bad. I think the ego is a necessary part of the human experience. Um, I, I'm a big dog lover and I like to think of egos. They're like dogs. They just want to protect the master. Um, and they're very bonded to the master and they don't have the big picture. They just have a little limited, what is my relationship to my master and, you know, to my immediate home environment? I've got cute little fluff dogs, but if they see another dog barking by, they go crazy barking, right? So the ego can be like that. So I think it's really important when people are, before they go into deep relationship with each other, to have quality conversation about, wow, what's your intimacy threshold? What does kissing for the first time mean to you? What does sleeping together for the first time mean to you? What is you know, because it might mean one thing to one person and something completely different to the other. Mm -hmm. And then when they realize there's that difference in meaning or interpretation, then the ego gets triggered, fear comes into play, into, you know, intimacy threshold has been crossed by one or maybe both people. And then, you know, the walls come up and then the walls come up and it triggers, oh my God, I did it again. I opened myself up and, too much and this person's going to hurt me. Right. And then people go from collecting evidence to, wow, you're safe to connect with to, oh, my God, you're the next person who's going to hurt me. Does that sound like a familiar oh, pattern? Totally. I, I, I don't know if anyone's not uh, in relationship with that dynamic. Uh, I'm curious if you if you have any things you would say to someone who's wanting to cultivate more of that empathy, um, recognizing that, uh, you know, it's a part of us. The, the desire to protect ourselves is, is natural and on some level good. Like, I love what you say about ego. I like to think of ego as it's like how our, the vehicle for moving in the world and relating in the world develops over time. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, the vehicle is like the outer layer of our self. And it, if, if we've been really authentic and we've been vulnerable and we've been responsible and we've healed then our ego is is very gentle and responsive and resilient and kind. And, you know, of course, it can take any shape, but the ego in and of itself is not wrong or bad. It's just how we've developed uh, in terms of how we relate to others. Yeah. So I like that, that different framing. I but agree. but anything, anything for people that that they could maybe take away and, and, and practically begin working with um, becoming more empathetic, but also becoming more capable like I love the idea of someone learning how to check in with themselves. Like, oh yeah, like the, I, I actually realized just a minute ago I passed a threshold, and and I, I'm gonna need to just kind of push pause here, or I need us to back off a little bit here because I can just feel that I isn't right. I, I think everyone's got a kind of gut instinct, and in our society, I think mostly we've been taught out of it. So how do we how do we get get that get that uh, intuition back on track? Great question. So I want to acknowledge uh, probably the most important mentor in my life was Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, founder of Nonviolent Communication. Uh, I had the incredible good fortune to travel with him, stay in hotel rooms with him, uh, and do a lot of video work with him. Uh, and then teach uh, by his side, which was amazing. And I learned a lot from Marshall. And one of the wonderful things that Marshall taught me, which is one answer to your question, when we are wanting to give empathy. Um, we really want to be compassionate, but we're triggered or we're struggling with it. We have to give ourselves an emergency dose of self-empathy. I love that terminology, an emergency dose of self-empathy. 
And actually, you can learn how to do it. If you practice it, you can do it in about 30 to 60 seconds. Four steps. Step number one, what am I telling myself? Oh my God, I can't believe we're having to have this conversation again. Oh God, I don't want to deal with this. You know, usually our first reaction is a thought that has some form of judgment and some form of, I don't want to deal with this going on. We have to acknowledge that first, not hang out there, definitely not express it, <laughs> but notice, oh, there's my, I don't want to deal with this thought going on. Right underneath that, what am I feeling? I'm feeling frustrated, I'm feeling agitated. What am I needing? I'm needing harmony, I'm needing ease, I'm needing quality connection. Now, even as we do that, you might even notice in my voice, although I wasn't intentionally doing that, even my, my voice changes, right? The difference between, oh God, I don't wanna deal with this to I'm feeling frustrated, I'm needing harmony. Like as we go from our mental thoughts into what we're really feeling, into what we're really longing for, that actually is self-empathy. That's acknowledging the deeper level of what's really happening. And we pivot from our judgmental, what's wrong with you, into what I'm longing for. And what we're longing for is always beautiful, right? Um, Robert Gonzalez was another teacher of mine who just died last week. And Robert taught about the beauty of the unmet need. So even if I'm not experiencing harmony, the fact that I'm longing for harmony, right? If I'm not experiencing connection, but I'm longing for connection, harmony is beautiful. Connection is beautiful. So when we pivot from what I'm not getting to what I'm longing for, that brings us into a state of more receptivity. Right? So those are the three steps. And then the fourth and final step is after we do that, we recognize, well, I'm just really longing for connection right now or whatever it is. Can my care for this person supersede my discomfort? We have to ask ourselves that. In some cases, it's can my love for this person. In other cases, it's for my care for this person. Supersede my discomfort. And you have to be honest. For this to work, you have to be honest. Most of the time, the answer will be yes. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable, but I love Dolphin, and I, I really want to be there for him right now. But sometimes, no. My agitation is too great. My frustration is too strong. And my discomfort is, in this moment, greater than my ability to care for you or to care for the other. And if we commit to always being honest, then this, this practice works. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I mean, I have about 18 questions I want to ask you, so I'm going to try, I'm going to, try to organize them in a way that, that allows this to go somewhere. Um, so uh, I think those questions are so simple, and I love, I love simple principles because, to me, the real answer to the complex difficulties of our life is not more complexity. It, it's like coming back to very simple things that, that are at the heart of, of how life works. Like, life is so brilliant, but it's not trying to be. It just is. And so I'll, I'll say the four, because each is a phrase, we can even make a little, I actually have a page. Please. What am I telling myself? What am I feeling? What am I longing for? And can my care or love for this person supersede my discomfort? Those are the four questions. I used to say, can my love or care trump and then there was a certain president who got elected and I had to find a word. What's another word for Trump? Ah, supersede. Got it. Yeah. So good. So good. So simple. I, I just invite anyone who's listening who hasn't done this kind of work, or even if you have, start small. Start in small moments and, and small opportunities to bring inquiry and question and, and genuine curiosity in. And it just it has such a profound ability to start to transform things. So thank you for those simple pieces. Uh, I think the other thing that I often like to share with people is, and it comes to that piece around the superseding, uh, relationship is challenging and, and it's not free. Like you, you can't have everything you have when you're single, when you're in a partnership and vice versa. So like there's trade-offs uh, for better or worse, there's trade-offs. And so in, in essence, there's 
there's like a chorus of voices in us. I was actually just working with a client earlier today and we were talking about how inside of us, we're, we're much more like a choir. You know, there's, there's this whole group of, of voices. Each of them is its own. Its own has it. Each one of them have their own uh, sense of, of what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what they value, what kind of result they'd like to see. And what we are, like I think what, we, what our deeper kind of truth of being human is, is that we're the conductor. Hmm. We're meant to kind of bring the choir into a, a whole synergistic, graceful expression, but we, we aren't taught how to be a conductor. In fact, mostly we're taught how to be a bad conductor or an absentee conductor, and then the voices kind of go crazy and people, you know, voices that shouldn't be at the steering wheel are at the steering wheel. So I often encourage people to think about in a moment where you feel multiple desires in different directions, that that's a beautiful moment to a kind of attune to the messages that are in those voices. Like there's real meaning. Life is bringing you information about what's of value and what's of less value. And so for us to start, to me, mastery in communication and relationship is about being able to register all the voices at play and to discern the, the real level of value of the message they're bringing. Mm. And, and, and I think that's really what you're talking about in terms of that exercise where, oh, wow, I can feel a genuine desire to care for this person, but I can also tune in in the midst of that desire that there's a deeper desire, a more authentic desire to take care of myself or to create some space or to give them some space. Yeah. And, and one of the most beautiful things that I realized early on in my work is sometimes no is yes. Like by saying no to what's occurring right now, something that is happening, I actually am giving a more full yes to the relationship, to the connection. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we've, we've made no a dirty word and to the detriment of our relationships. When, when I can't trust my no or my partner's no, we can't trust our yeses either. And so that's just a, a really simple, powerful piece that I think people can take with them as well. You know, Marshall always said, when you hear no, don't go into resistance to it. Get curious about what the person is saying yes to. Mm -hmm. They might be saying, no, I can't drive you to the airport because they're saying yes to taking care of their kids that afternoon or whatever it is, right? Um, yeah. So again, it's a way to flip it because when we hear no, our, our ego usually hears no as I don't care about you, mm -hmm. right? Um, but actually, again, if we can look for what are they saying yes to, then we can have understanding. Yeah, it's a bummer. They're not going to drive me to the airport and he's committed to going to see his kid's soccer practice or whatever it is, right? Mm. Um, and it all comes down to finding that balance of self-love and love and care for others. And it's a balance. Like you were saying, you know, whether we're single, it's one thing. And when we're in relationship, it's different. Um, and it's funny, I was the guest host on the self-love show today. So I've kind of got self-love on the brain. Um, and, but I, I want to come back to that for a moment because again, on the shame piece, many of us were taught that self-love is selfish. Mm. And that's, it's, I, I just wish that I could remove that concept from every human brain. And if we remove that concept and that true self-love is healthy, my God, what a better world would be in. What's selfish are the behaviors that people enact because they aren't loving themselves properly. And so they're looking for something outside of them or they're making, we make selfish choices when there's not enough self-love. When there's enough self-love, then we have so much to give to the world and we want to give to the world. Yeah, beautiful. You know, uh, I know Marshall comes up in conversation almost every time I talk with someone about relationships and communication. And uh, I'm just curious if you have any insights that, that people would be interested. Like, I know there's curiosity about these people that have such a profound impact on the world and on for him around communication and relationship. Um, do you have any particular story of him or, or, you know, just something to share that would give people a deeper sense of him that maybe have read his books, um, enjoy his work, but, but, you know, would benefit from a deeper understanding of where all that work came from? 
I have a beautiful story to share. It'll take a couple of minutes, but it's a beautiful story. Please. So um, I was hired by the Center for Nonviolent Communication to do a series of videos with Marshall. And so we arranged that he was going to be flying into Southern California and he was going to be taking a tour from Corona where he was leading up a, a, a international uh, uh, teaching training all the way up to Seattle. And so we arranged that I would travel with him. And uh, I got there and pretty much just filmed the training. We didn't get a chance to connect very much, but he had just gotten back from the Middle East where he had had an extraordinary experience that was still very alive for him. And he shared that experience during the training. And then as we were traveling, we processed the experience quite a bit. Now, to set up the meaning of this experience, we have to talk about probably the biggest turning point in his life. When Marshall was 10 years old, he and his father went out to dinner at a restaurant at a coffee shop, and they're Jewish. And uh, a group of other adults, young adults that were kind of probably gang-like, uh, started giving them a bad time because they were Jewish. And the father kind of ignored it. They paid the bill, they went out, and on their way to their car, this group uh, kept prodding and prodding and ended up beating up Marshall's father just because he was Jewish. And imagine as a 10-year-old boy watching your father get beat up because of your last name, Rosenberg. And that experience, which, and his father had done nothing to initiate it. His father was just Jewish. That was the only problem, the issue. And that set Marshall on his lifelong journey of trying to understand why people do what they do. Fast forward 40 years. Now Marshall is a world famous teacher of nonviolent communication and he's traveling all over the world. And he's been invited uh, to Israel where he has been invited to give a presentation in a Palestinian refugee camp. Uh, it's in land that had been occupied by Palestinians. Now it's Israeli occupied and it's a mess. Um, and he gets there. And of course, he just agrees to do it because of course he wants to help out. He doesn't really think about what the dynamics going to be. He gets there and the scene is a nightmare. It's hot. It's almost like a prison camp. There's barbed wire. There's Israeli soldiers with machine guns and batons and a lot of Palestinian civilians who feel stuck there, who are pissed, their property's been taken away, they're angry. And Marshall's supposed to give them a talk on nonviolent communication, right? And they kind of march everybody into this tent uh, and it's hot and Marshall starts, and he's got this prepared little speech. He starts to go into his speech and the heckling begins. And right off the bat, he hears, kike, dirty Jew, kike. And he's no longer Marshall Rosenberg, the great nonviolent communicator. He's a 10-year-old boy, re-stimulated. I know some getting tears as I tell this story. Scared to death. And the heckling is continuing from this one particular guy. And Marshall sees the guards on their way to get rid of this guy. And Marshall's first thought is, good, get rid of this clown. And then he has an epiphany. He realizes, oh my God, am I gonna just read this speech and get the hell out of here? Or am I gonna demonstrate what I teach? Incredible choice point, right? And I just wanna acknowledge how human, that part of you like, get this guy out of here. I just want to end this. I, I don't want to deal with this because that's where we are when we're confronted with hard stuff, right? But God bless Marshall. He gives himself an emergency dose of self-empathy. I'm safe. And I really want to understand what this person has to say. And that's what he repeats to himself a couple times. He acknowledges I'm scared shitless. I'm afraid. And I want to hear what this man has to say. I want to have a communication with him. So he calls off the guards and he actually verbally says that. He says, no, no, I want to hear what this gentleman has to say. Now that's a pattern disrupt and that gets the audience's attention, 
because that's not what you're expecting, right? So the audience gets a little curious. Now, by now, the heckler, because he thought he was about to get yanked out, he's standing up and he's shouting at Marshall. Um, you dirty Jew, do you see what your country in America is? Da, 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 da. And Marshall says, sir, I do want to hear what you have to say, but I can hear you better if you'd just be willing to please slow down and please try not to use offensive languaging. Please try. Well, the guy slows down a little bit. He sees that Marshall's called off the guards, but he still is very firm. Your country supports this situation. I have a wife. I have children. I can't even go to my own place of work. I can't take care of my family the way that I want to take care of. It's because of your damn country supporting this situation. Now, Marshall just got all sorts of information. He's got a wife. He's got children. He can't even work the way that he's supposed to work. He can't get to his own business to take care of his family the way that he wants to. So Marshall doesn't go into defending America or defending Israel. He goes into empathy. You have a wife, you have children, you want to take good care of them. You damn right want to take good care of them. And he just gives empathy. The man calmed down. Marshall brings him up and they just talk. At the end of that experience, this same man who'd been calling him a dirty kike bastard invited Marshall to a makeshift Ramadan dinner in his family's tent. And he went on to become a nonviolent communication teacher and facilitator. And I've told this story at least a hundred times and I still cry. And I cry because it's such a profound modeling of what's possible for us. Because we are going to be confronted with really hard stuff and we're going to want to just disconnect. We're going to want to protect ourselves. We're going to want to put the wall up. But if we can give ourselves that emergency dose of self-empathy, if we can avoid being defensive and not defending our country or our stance, but just listening with empathy, miracles. Miracles can happen in our relationships. Anyway, I didn't know that we were going to go here. I was going to cry. No, it's so good. Yeah, you know, Scott, I, I think about just all of the people in the world, everyone with their own very powerful, visceral, first-person experience of their life. And, and no one gets off the hook of the difficulties of that. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that we carry the same difficulties. That's for sure not the case. But no one gets through life without difficulty and without vulnerability and without heartbreak, heartache. Um, but I love stories like that because they they demonstrate to us what we're capable of. And, and I think I just want to bring it back to a piece that, that we started with, which is I think the only way we, we step out to that edge is if we have some sense of the value in doing so. And that's where purpose comes in. So, you know, internally, there's not nearly enough time. I would love to, we'll do this again for sure. And 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 maybe we'll start doing longer podcasts, but. And um, I want to geek out with you sometime over voice dialogue work. Totally. You brought that up a little bit and I, I call it sub-personality work. And I yeah. love doing sub-personality and voice dialogue work. So let's mark let's get to geek out on that. Sometime. I would love to. I, I, I've, I've done within my own kind of reality and within my work with people um, really kind of come to a place of clarity around just how those parts work. I'm still learning in it, but, but um, mostly what we learn growing up, mostly what we learn uh, kind of from the people around us it is missing most of what's operating and most of the the tools that we need to really sort things out just are not available to us. And so, of course, we just do the best we can. But yeah, I'm a yes to that conversation for sure. Great. Uh, but I think that the piece that I wanted to kind of bring into focus as we close the conversation here is um, stepping to the edge is a choice to be more at risk to the vulnerabilities of life. It just is. It's like Marshall didn't have to go to, you know, Israeli-occupied Palestinian land, and he didn't have to give that talk, and he definitely didn't have to speak to that man. Yeah, now I'm feeling it. Yeah. But, 
you know, when we say yes to those edges, because we're called, like there's really a, a life's call to, to, I'll bring it back to your purpose, like to, to learn how to love. Mm. Um, the value in that, not just for ourselves, but for everyone that we come into contact with is staggering. And, and so, yeah, I just appreciate uh, you and what you've given your life's work to, um, the people you support, and uh, really just appreciate you being a part of, of, of my journey and uh, definitely appreciate that you're a part of the RelationFlix family. Um, maybe you could tell people a little bit about uh, where they can find you and uh, anything else you'd like to share before we yeah. say goodbye for now. Well, first of all, thank you. And thank you, Stephen, for creating RelationFlex. I'm so excited about it. And it's been cool. You know, Stephen um, attended my Relationship Essentials course four times. He took it four times. Um, and, uh, and so his dedication to learning these tools, um, I, I'm just so proud that he's now putting so much of that effort into creating RelationFlex with you. Um, and so thank you both because it's a Herculean task. And I think the number one place I'd love people to find me is on RelationFlex. Find me there. Okay. You can also go to, um, lovecoachacademy.com. Um, and, uh, cause I do train the coaches and that's where you'll find uh, a lot of my, a lot of my coaches that are working with RelationFlex, people that have also studied and trained with me that are amazing in their own ways. Jessica Osterday, who has her amazing brain spotting work. Trish, who I've been partnering with for over a year uh, with our weekly um, show, Straight Talk. Um, and other people that have come through Love Coach Academy that are part of your organization. So, you know, we're all dedicated to recognizing that, again, life is relationship. And to change the world, we have to change ourselves and change our relationships. Um, and I think all, most of us know that the world does need to change and the world is changing. And most of us have hopefully a positive vision for at least what we can do to help change our immediate world. And it's all about changing how we, how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we treat ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. So thank you, RelationFlix, um, for giving us an opportunity to provide tools practices um, to people who want to have better relationship. Thank you, Scott. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. Uh, so much more to come. Thank you for being a part of the ride, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.